What's up, everybody? Welcome back. This episode sponsored by our generous patrons over on patreon.com forward slash Red Hills Rancher. If you'd like to show your support for the podcast, check the show notes for a link. Announcing Bobo Links. What are Bobo Links? Well, the Bobo Link is a small new world blackbird and a... Oh, wait a minute. That's the wrong type. Bobo Links are a new meat snack from the fine folks at Blue Nest Beef and can only come from Autobahn certified bird friendly American ranches. 100% grass-fed beef, no hormones, antibiotics, or grain. Bobo links are individually wrapped, and I usually keep one in my pocket for a quick, healthy snack anytime. Bobo links are everything I want in a meat snack, no fillers or junk, much better flavor and texture than anything else I've ever tried. Visit the link in the show notes or check my link tree and use the code BOBOREBOOT for 10 bucks off your first package. If you've ever wanted a place to come hang out with me and ask questions and meet other fans, I have good news for you. Every Wednesday evening, I'll be on my Discord server chatting and generally hanging out. If you'd like to come join the fun, the first place you should go is the Ranching Reboot Paddock, our private Facebook group, and check for a link there. If you don't find one, reach out on social media or send me an email and I'll make sure you get a link. All right, that's it for the announcements. You know the drill, got to pay the bills, and then we're going to go to it. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right, so we're here today with Mindy Kane from Kane Meats, and I don't want to give a whole lot away, but uh, they did win the Best Beef in the West contest that we talked about uh, several months ago with our friend Tyler McCann on the Rendezvous City Beef Roundup. So, Mindy Kane, welcome to Ranching Reboot. Thanks, Brian. I'm happy to be here. I'm glad we could make this work. Uh, just just for everybody else, we're doing this one a week after we planned because when, when Mindy and I sat down to do this a week ago, I had woken up and I couldn't get more than about 10 seconds away from a box of Kleenexes. Just one of those days I woke up and the allergies, sinus trouble. Yeah, I, I couldn't do much. So uh, I'm, I'm glad we could finally sit down and do this, Mindy. So why don't you start off by telling us, um, giving us some tidbits about where you're at and um, I'll, I'll start finding some rabbits to chase. All right. Sounds like a plan. So my husband and I have a ranch here east of Kersey, Colorado. We're about seven miles east of Kersey. And we started this about 16 years ago is when we bought the property. And of course, it always takes a little bit of time to build up the property the way you want it. So we've been doing cattle probably about 10 of those years. Um, I work full-time as an educator and he works full-time as a maintenance supervisor. So ranching is our second full-time hobby <laughs> that usually takes the nights and weekends. So that's a little bit about us. I'm a native of Colorado and my husband is back in the state that he loved. So here we are. Okay, where is Kersey, Colorado? I've never heard of that. We're about 15 miles east of Greeley, Colorado, and about an hour north of Denver. Okay, okay. 
that, that makes, um, well, now I can kind of place that. <laughs> exactly, exactly. We're called the Eastern Plains, but we can see the foothills. Very nice, very nice. What's uh, probably not, what's the rainfall like? Probably like 14 inches, maybe, if you're lucky. Yeah, yeah, somewhere in there. We're very arid. Oh, that's not great. Um, not, not great at all when it comes to dry land. Well, when it's, when it is dry, it just means it's a, more of a management challenge to make sure your cows have forage all year. Yes. Yes. So, so what kind of cows do you have? We are currently raising a Corriente Longhorn cross. That is our preferred cross. We do have some Corrientes. We do have a couple that are more than Corriente, a little more, more Longhorn in them. We find, we've, we're finding as we're getting deeper into this that the, this cross actually provides a bigger frame and it still has the wonderful leanness and flavor and profile that the Corrientes are known for. Although not many people know of that. <laughs> I, I would agree not many people know of that, and I, it, it, it's not really our little secret anymore. Um, I was going to say, we're giving away our secret now, Brian. <laughs> but that's okay. Everybody else is going to be a couple generations behind, so they'll, they'll yes. just have to play catch-up. Well, right. I, I'm a fan of the same of, of the breed for the same reason you are. You know, a lot of the same reasons. They're, they're efficient. They... You know, I'm not really concerned about marbling because the flavor and the tenderness is just out of this world. Yes, it is. So, so in addition to the breed, we also have a feeding program that enhances that flavor profile. Okay. Uh, and, and, and Mark is sitting here in the background. He's, Shh, don't give away all of our secrets. So. <laughs> <laughs> but again, we're, we're perfecting this and getting better all of all the time just like everybody in the beef industry you find your niche and we happen to have found an amazing niche that works for us it works for our property it works for the time that we have to put into this this side business um this is not something that works for everybody but it certainly works for us okay have you guys always, did you start with Corriente and Longhorn cattle? Honestly, no, we did not. When we got into this funny story, when we got into this, we were going to raise two animals. We were going to butcher one and then sell the second one just to pay for the costs of putting beef in our own freezer. And honestly, I think that's pretty much how everybody starts. Yeah. But we ended up being very fortunate in that aspect as we got a hold of a couple of local breweries in Greeley and we were able to secure the spent grain. So we got into this. I was always on Craigslist, always on these marketing pages. And I said, look, honey, here's some great cattle at a good price. <laughs> so we grew the herd a little bit. And we got into these breweries and ended up having more grain than we had animals to feed. Well, we had some friends that had more animals than they had feed. That was a marriage proposal in the works. And we brought their animals into our, our facility and we fed them out over the winter with the intent we were going to sell them at the 
livestock or the the um, livestock sale the next spring, and that never happened. I ended up selling the beef out of all twelve animals, and it shocked everybody that we were working with, and that was how everything was birthed. So, really, kind of a beautiful accident. Okay. Yeah, I I get that. You know, I I wonder why a lot of people sometimes are in the cattle business. Maybe because they like cows. Maybe it's because they do want to put one in their freezer and just figure out a way how to how they're not going to have to pay for that. And mm-hmm. sometimes it's that one you want to put in the freezer that gets really expensive because it's the other four or five that you got to raise to get there. But it sounds like you you figured right. it out pretty good. I did. I did. And again, it was a beautiful accident. Um, I don't, I don't believe that every, anything happens by accident, that it was really, truly meant to be for us and very thankful and blessed for what we have now that it just really worked that way. Okay. How many, but how many cows are you guys running now? We have about 45 out there right now. Okay. Okay. So we're on 28 acres. So that we can honestly, by regulations, do more, but with the process that we do and getting the quality that we want, we really can't. We want to have a personal relationship with our animals. And if we get many more than that, we can't. So the, this is really where we want to stay right now. We're processing three a month and that works really well for what we want to do. Okay. So let let's kind of maybe segue off to the the best beef in the west competition how did you guys get involved in that that was fun i saw tyler post on facebook last year and that they were doing this beef competition they had done it the previous year just for wyoming and this year they had the brilliant idea of opening it up to all of the beef producers that wanted to participate in the united states and I told my husband about it. And I said, let's do it. Why not? It was in Riverton. He's, uh, he grew up in Wyoming. So we decided that we would go ahead and take a chance and, you know, just kind of see how we were, how we do. And it really wasn't about the competition. It was about seeing what everybody else is doing and kind of getting an idea of the producers nationwide. So that first year we went up and we had a blast. It was such a fun day. It was, we had great engagement. They had speakers that really spoke in the industry, spoke of the industry. And we got to try amazing beef from from producers nationwide. They had it set up to where everybody could sample the beef all day long. We met a couple producers that we saw again this year. And you kind of formed that that industry connection, if you will. Okay. So we walked away from it last year and we think fourth place, they only, they only uh, presented the winner last year. Okay. So we were just kind of looking at the points at the end of the day and they were kind enough to let us know how we fared. And, and we were thrilled because we pulled beef, just our normal consumer beef out of the freezer and we were in the top five. And it's like, holy cow, we've got something going here. So this year we were able to time it just a little bit better and had absolute fresh beef. 
And we know that that makes a big difference. We knew we had the flavor. We knew that we had the profile to do well again this year. Although with the caliber of beef that shows up at the best beef in the West, we really didn't have expectations of bringing home the buckle. So we were sitting there as they, and, and of course the winner from last year was there again. And being able to try their beef from last year, we're like, oh boy, here we go. Because we know after tasting everybody's last year, it's like, we're in for a treat. This is, this is an amazing competition and some incredible producers show up. And again, we had a blast. It was such a fun day and amazing education. You walk away with different tidbits about how to make your own operation better. And that's, really the piece that I enjoy the most because you're not only getting the education from the speakers that they bring in, but you're getting education from all the other producers that are coming in and just getting a feel for how they run their operation. It's some of those things work for everybody. Some of those things don't work for everybody. You just take what you can to improve your own operation. So we were sitting there as they were getting ready to reveal the, the winners, the best beef in the West and all the other producers that have been there, 10 different states and 11 different producers. And they told us that from all of the best beef in the West, West producers, that as of judging the New York, there was only 21 points spread between all of them. So that is an incredible testimony to the beef that actually had shown up. So they had scored then all of the New Yorks and the top four producers then got to go have their rib bites scored or judged. So then the top four placings were then the top three were announced at the ceremony. Do they tell you how your strip did? And then, you know, you're in the top four for the ribeye. No, they did not. So we didn't even know who the top four were. So everybody's just kind of sitting on pins and needles waiting for all of the results to come in. So they announced the third place winner. And this producer did amazing last year as well. And super fun producer out of Utah, Dry Lakes Beef. And we're like, oh boy, big producers. Here we go. And they announced two points there was a two point spread between second and third place so they announced the second place winner which was mountain view meets out of fort collins who was last year's first place winner i think i've heard of them yes they're amazing people um they again amazing beef but they announced that producer as second place and my husband and i just kind of looked at each other we're like oh boy, I guess we get to try again next year and see how we do next year. And he announced by one point, the first place winner. And he said, Kane meets. And I had this massive shock look on my face. And Mark had to turn and look at me to make sure that he had earned right. (laughs) It was just the most, still the most incredible feeling to know that a small producer can actually go head to head against these larger, uh, incredible herds and really not only do well, but top them. And it was the most humbling feeling to know that we're doing something right. 
and doing it with Coriente and Longhorn cross cattle, not with Angus or Wagyu or any, you know, continental breed of the month or, or black breed exactly. of the month. And that, that's what I think and, is really, really interesting. Yes. And the judges were shocked. We had talked to a couple of judges prior to the competition and they said, you can eat those animals. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, yeah, we're, we're doing really well. Our customers love them. And here we are. So when we stood up there and we accepted our award and I told them we were raising the Korean Day Longhorn Cross, you just heard this audible gasp from the entire audience. It's just like, you can eat those animals. <laughs> yeah, I, it's interesting, you know, like I know how cheap they are around here. I imagine it's probably fairly similar out there and not all of the cheap ones are going to be worth the money. Like the, Exactly. There's some that uh, that probably should stay at the sale barn and there's some that, you know, mm. probably would do really good at a couple hundred bucks if you brought them home and you fed them some good yeah. some good feed. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. We had started our process with the Angus because I had some friends that, that raise show quality, beautiful animals, absolutely gorgeous animals. And they did really, really well on our feeding program. The problem that we found is because they are beautiful and they're larger. My customer base down in the metro area had, number one, had a hard time with the quantity of beef that we had to provide because it's, it's a budget kicker when you're going to buy a quarter, half or a whole beef. And the T-bones that you get off of that Angus, which is <laughs> dinner plate size, Right. Versus just that nice Coriante Longhorn T-bone that is a beautiful serving size that most people are used to. That was kind of a deal breaker for us because we really do service a lot of urban customers okay. that either don't have the deep freeze space or they don't, they're not used to the bigger quantities of beef. So really the cut size that we have is, is perfect for our customer base. I I've run into that a little bit. I've just, uh, I've just had a few processed in the last couple of months and trying to get rid of some has holes and quarters. Mm -hmm. And I think, uh, okay, I'll say it. My halves hang out around two forty ish. Some are a little mm -hmm. bigger, some are a little smaller, but around two forty ish. Is mm -hmm. that, is that about where you're at with yours? Um, in terms of dollar or, or weight, uh, weight, weight. Um, we are actually, yeah, yeah. Right in that general, our halves are about 250 ish. And I don't know, and Angus can be well, oh, well over a hundred pounds heavier than that, you know, some, yes. sometimes dang, dang near double mm -hmm. that. And yes. the, so what I've run into is, yeah, that's a really good price, but I can't afford that right now, or I don't have anywhere to store that. Mm -hmm. And like th this isn't a general dig on on anybody. It's just kind of a general observation. Um, even some friends that we have that live, quote, in town, which is a mile away, and we're still 20 miles from a grocery store. Uh -huh. They told us yesterday they don't have a deep freeze. Like, oh, how, do we, yeah. how do we live 20 miles from town and not have mm. a deep freeze? Right, right. And, but that's more common. That is, that is very common. I think we've gotten away from that generation 
that really um, put all of that to use. They put to use the pantry, they put to use the freezer. We moved away from really that generation of people. Yeah, but, and I guess my paradigm is a little screwy because I grew up out here 20 miles from town and we've always had a deep mm -hmm. freeze. Mm -hmm. And everybody's house that I went to when I was a kid, they always had a deep freeze. Like, and this will tell you how long, like how far out I am and how long I've been around. Like we used to have the swan truck come out. And that was like, <laughs> like when the swan truck came around <laughs> in the nineties, man, that was like, mm -hmm. that was almost as good as Christmas. That's I like, agree. All kinds of good stuff to fill up the freezer that you really can't get at the store. Exactly. And you had to have a deep freeze. Like, yeah, and for those that don't know, Schwann's was a, I think they still do home delivery. They do. But up, up till a few years ago, it's super popular out in the rural areas. And like, you would just fill out the catalog, like circle the shit you wanted and leave <laughs> the catalog on your deep freeze. The guy would show up, mm -hmm. read the catalog, put your order in and leave you a bill. And all I had to do is just write a check for next time or send a mm -hmm. check into home office. It's like food just magically shows up and there's like ice cream bars. <laughs> you know, that was the coolest oh, thing the ever. Best, right. I, it was the best. I agree. And then and, when they were out of your favorites, it was like, Oh no, I have to wait for an entire month. <laughs> yeah. What do you mean? I have to wait a month for my ice cream bars. That's what. Yeah. <laughs> hmm. yeah. But then, but then I left here and I was in the military for like eight and a half years, Navy and living in apartments and you know eventually had a house back on the east coast and one of the things that i wanted to get when i while i had that house is i wanted to put a deep freeze in the garage mm -hmm. my ex-wife really couldn't understand why i'm like well store food well we're not going to be here forever but never ended up getting one always wanted to and i guess what i'm saying is we get loaded into complacency okay yeah i don't have the space mm -hmm. for that it's money the grocery store it's like three blocks away I can just go there every other day and get what I need. And I didn't grow up like that. And it was really easy when I did move back here to be like, yep, deep freeze time. Let's make sure we keep mm -hmm. that sucker full. And things like, uh, well, two years ago when everybody was freaking out about toilet paper not being around, like I keep right? six months around. Like, yeah, when mm -hmm. that gets half gone, we go fill it up. So we always have right. toilet paper. It's not something we're ever going to run out of. To, anyway. Just a uh, just a little bit, a little bit different of a of a mindset. Mindset. Mm -hmm. So yeah, absolutely. So who are your main customers? Like just generally throughout the year. Um, we actually cater to so many different populations. Um, again, we have a lot of urban, more urbanite customers, and. Honestly, those are the people that I love. I love all of my customers, but the urban customers are so willing to learn what we do. I have some customers coming out tomorrow night to pick up their beef and their pork, and they just want to see the ranch. So being able to educate folks on what we do, I'm an educator at heart. I've been an educator for over 20 years. So being able to share with folks what we do and how important this lifestyle is not just to the food chain but to the environment as a whole is really something that i enjoy and something that i love doing so a lot of my urban customers they'll come in and 
and apologize for asking all of these questions. I've never done this before. I've never purchased a quarter of a beef. I've never purchased from a ranch. How do I do this? And really those are the customers that are the most fun because they generally have a, an interest in agriculture. And I'm their first experience with that. And if I make that a poor experience, they're not coming back to agriculture. So we do our very best to make that experience something that they will come back to time and time again, whether it's us as producers or anybody else that's trying to live a, make a living on the land they're going to have a greater experience or greater understanding of what they're purchasing and where their food comes from. And all of those things that as an industry that we're fighting, that we really need people to understand that this is, we are not an option. I'm sorry. Agriculture is not an option for the human population. Yeah. We're, we're not going to survive on industrial farmed plant-based foods like that, that that's no. just, that's not a reality that's that's not a reality at yeah. all and you're kind of talking about a bigger issue and I'm curious as to what kind of educator you are maybe we can get into that um and I I like hearing about the own that you're bringing out people that you know have lost their connection to agriculture and I think that's that's a lot of what what some of the core issue is here that we're talking about in in the grand scheme of of, of the world, right? It's, yes. We have so many generations that are so far disconnected from agriculture that they have no idea where their food comes from. You know, you're getting 20 and 30 somethings professionals that have never been outside of the city coming out to your farm to pick up meat. And they want to see how you take care of your cattle and how you take care of your land and what those animals look like in a natural environment. And yeah. That's that's super important to connect customers and consumers back with the story of their food and and with the origins of their food. And it's important for all of us as producers at every scale, whether you're a 40 cow operation, whether you're a 100 cow custom grazing operation or a 75,000 head feedlot. Mm -hmm. Okay, we all have to be more open to sharing our production practices with the public and showing the public how we care for our animals. And I'm going to put a little star beside that because I did say feedlots. Now, here's the thing. When those people come around, they start asking questions. Well, why do you do that? What's that big 15 acre pond down there? Why is it so mm -hmm. dusty? Oh, why are your cows standing in belly deep grass? You know, we need to be prepared to answer those questions. And yes. if we can't answer those questions without defending ourselves or defending a practice, maybe we need to re-examine that practice. Yes. And I'm going to add a little bit to that. One of the hardest questions that I get is how does your process differ from that feedlot down the road? We're three miles away from one of the biggest JBS feedlots Okay. In the state, nation, whatever. But we're neighbors with JBS. How to answer that question without digging on the feedlot industry? Temple Grandin has done incredible things over the course of her professional career to improve the lives of livestock, even in the feedlot setting. And I don't, I personally don't feel those animals are mistreated. However, it's a different way of processing an animal and, and people have to understand that 
the beef quality is going to be different, even though the animals are not mistreated in that particular portion of the industry. So that's where I find a little bit of a challenge. It's sometimes I think it's the things that we do in the name of speed and quote efficiency mm-hmm. that turn out to be maybe not the most environmentally friendly things to do mm-hmm. and maybe not mm-hmm. the most um, appropriate thing to do from an overall animal welfare standpoint. Right. Right. And, you know, it, it's super hard to talk about a different production practice from mainstream feedlots because mainstream feedlots like, look, that's, that's 95 plus percent <laughs> of the beef that people are eating. I mean, let's be mm-hmm. honest. I mean, I'd like to think that, you know, grass-fed, pasture-raised is coming up, that small craft beef is is starting to erode that. It's a huge growth sector, but in the overall beef consumption, it's still a very, very small percentage, even though it's the fastest growing sector in agriculture and has been for three years. Yes. You know, just just being able to talk about how, how my pasture-raised cattle, Coriente-based genetics are different from an Angus-based feedlot animal that gets fed, you know, a full ration of corn, full feed and stands in a mm-hmm. pen for, for four or five months. Yeah. Without saying negative things about the feedlot system, it's so hard. It's so hard to differentiate a product because, you know, we throw around terms like, oh, trust the science. Oh, this is better. This mm-hmm. is what we have to do for efficiency. And right. there, there's a point where that breaks down. Like, mm-hmm. I think that there's some significant animal welfare issues with the current feedlot system. And Mm -hmm. I definitely choose not to participate in that. (laughs) Right. Even though the industry as a whole has improved drastically from when you and I were raised, when you and I grew up. um, Yes, I would agree that the, the craft be, I love how you termed that because obviously we support the craft beer industry that the craft beef industry is bringing a whole new level of education into the agriculture industry as a whole and just saying that, that we can do things better. And, and that's, that's it. That's like, we can all do this better. Like mm-hmm. I'm sure that you know, somebody smarter than me could come out to my ranch and could tell me 10 things that I could be doing better. Mm-hmm. And that's fine. Mm-hmm. I will accept that. Mm-hmm. And I will try to make those changes because what's better for my land is going to be better for my cattle. Exactly. But what's better for my cattle is not always better for my land. So I, right. you know, where I am, I make decisions based on what's best for the land and what's, what's best for the continued production of this resource mm-hmm. for the next hundred years. Mm-hmm. Precisely. And I think that's why I love the rendezvous beef competition so much is because they are so focused on bringing in people that are willing to talk about the hard things. And as producers, we're willing to talk about those hard things to improve what we are providing our customers. Yep. You know, feedlots aren't going to go away overnight, no matter how much no. Cory Booker and Elizabeth Warren wish they would. They're not going away overnight. Like, and it, you guys just had to deal with, uh, what was it? a year or so ago, uh, the pause act. Oh boy. (laughs) (laughs) Don't get me started. Yeah. That was, that was scary. That was very scary. 
how close was it? How cl- how close were you guys to to actually getting that passed through? Do you have any? Fortunately, idea? very fortunately, the Supreme Court shot it down before it ended up on the ballot. Okay. So it was a Supreme Court shot it down because it was a multi-subject initiative. So apparently, to go on the ballot, you can only have one subject in your initiative, and they had multiple things. So this is the issue is not going away. It will come back and it will likely come back with a vengeance. So as, as producers, as agriculturists, we have to be prepared for something like this to get on the ballot. And that's one of the things that I can take pride in is educating these people that are down in the metro area. If I can educate one person and they go out and talk to 10 of their friends or 25 of their friends or 100 of their friends and say, this industry is not bad. These people are doing really good things and they have an amazing product. Then I'm fighting that battle one person at a time. And all of my other producers in the area that I'm supporting, Mountain View Beef and Dry Lakes Beef in Utah and all of these people that are coming together to unify what we are trying to do and get that out there we're going to make some noise but it's right now it's not enough noise we need to get out there i i would agree like i think it's a little after the way that pause act got shot down which you know i I didn't know of but it seems like i i know that it didn't go anywhere i didn't know what happened to it yes um it seems like when it's when things are quiet like this, a lot of producers are content to go, whew, glad we don't have to worry about that shit anymore. Let's continue on <laughs> yeah. to the next thing and not think that that's gonna come back. They're not yeah. done. Like a Supreme the Supreme Court telling them, no, you gotta rewrite this because this isn't right. That's not gonna stop them for very long. That that'll come back yeah. real quick. Yeah. Unfortunately, yes. So, and what people don't understand is we have, we're blessed to have a National Western Stock Show here in Denver. And you just have hordes of people from all over the nation come in to see these great little animals, cute animals, they have the petting zoos, they have the horse shows, they have these beautiful cow shows. I mean, all of the things. This pause act would have shut down all of that. It had an impact on pets. It had an impact on veterinarians. It had an impact on so many animal industries that I'm not kidding you when I say it was scary. It was downright horrifying. A couple of things I remember, um, they would have outlawed AI for for cattle. And they put a provision in there to where the animal had to live at least a quarter of its natural life before it could be taken and they set that arbitrary decision for cattle at what 20 yes okay yes cows can live 20 years cows it is is extremely (laughs) rare for a cow to make 20 years Mm -hmm. extremely rare like uh, most commercial cows go ahead I was going to say, that's a cow in the pasture that's having a baby every year. That is not a steer. That is not a bull. That is a cow. (laughs) Yeah. 
Yeah. Oh, we got to keep steers now for five years before they can be harvested. Uh, that doesn't work for anybody. No, no, it does not. So, yeah. And that was just one of the issues to the other issue was it would have made it a felony to pull a cap. So you were telling me as a producer, I have to stand by and watch this cow struggle in giving birth and watch this animal with her baby die. I'm sorry, that's not going to happen. <laughs> Take me to jail, do whatever, but I'm saving that life. I, I would agree with that. And, you know, I'm not the guy that wants to pull calves. And if I have to pull a calf out of a cow, I'm going to sell the cow, but I'm going <laughs> to. Exactly. Yes. Like, you know, we at least owe it to that animal to try to save its life. Exactly. So there was, there was really a lot of fundamental issues with livestock husbandry as a whole. Husbandry would have, would have truly gone out the window. And that's what scared me the most. Just because as a producer, as a small herd producer, those animals are my livelihood. Yes. And if I can't do what I need to do to take care of that animal, it's going to destroy me from the inside out. And that does not work for me. I oh. would, I would agree. And, I, <laughs> and to some extent, I think that, you know, you said the animal husbandry practices. I, I kind of feel like we've lost, lost some basic animal husbandry skills in the last hundred or so years. I agree. Uh, um, and I think, you know, there's some stockmanship that, uh, that we've forgotten to, you know, mm -hmm. I think back the cattle drives, the story of the cattle drives, 1840s, 1850s, 1860s, you know, they would bring coriented longhorn cattle from, you know, South Texas and Mexico, and they would drive them up to central Kansas or, you know, as far North as Omaha and put them on a train, you know, they'd bring a couple thousand head North with like two or three guys and the cattle would gain weight the whole way up. <laughs> right. right. And now we need 30 guys to gather a pasture of a hundred. Like, yeah. come on. And helicopters. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, no, there's, I, I'm not going to pretend to know that, that what it's like on a ranch. That's a quarter million acres that it takes 200 acres to run a cow on the challenges of, of trying to gather on that. Okay. Maybe you do need helicopters to cover ground, but maybe yes, there's, and if that works for you, then that, that's okay. And you'd have to have an awful lot of cows to support the operating cost of even one helicopter. Like even the little ones cost mm -hmm. like $250, $300 an hour to operate. Right. You right. know, that's a, uh, that's a lot of money. That's yes. a lot of money to go that's a lot of money to go fly around and chase cows for what yeah. is I'd be curious how those, how that actually works. If there's, I'd, I'd be curious of the economics of that on some operations, but that's, I guess that's mm -hmm. a, that's a different <laughs> that's conversation a, a different... for somebody else. Yes. Yes. Um, so what kind of educator are you? Yeah. So I have been a middle school science teacher for over 20 years. So science is a passion. I have my bachelor's degree in microbiology and I spent 
Um, almost 10 years in the food safety industry as a microbiologist. So being a rancher is kind of, beef rancher is kind of in my roots when it comes to that. And then I got into teaching and decided to take my passion into the, the middle school classroom. Um, just re recently, just this last year, I moved into what's called an innovative technology coach. So I coach teachers on how to bring innovation and enthusiasm back into the classroom, whether it be through technology or just different ways of engaging students. I am able to coach teachers into making their life exciting again. So as you know, the education sector is just just as bombarded with regulation and, and people that say, I know better than you, I'm going to come in and do all these regulations and make you do these things because I know better than you do, even though you have 16 plus years of education in your craft. Um, I also this year have taken on our very first and starting the ag program in our local middle school. And I've been blessed to be able to teach your class in that, which is focused on livestock production. So I'm teaching students how to do right now, how to raise chickens. So I have, we hatched 15 chickens in the classroom. We kept them up until this last Friday. I now have four chickens in my classroom. And we are in the process of putting together a proposal on how to keep those four chickens on our school property. So what happened to the other nine? They went back with this wonderful, amazing lady that donated the eggs. She has a chicken flock. Okay. So she donated the eggs and we hatched and raised them for her and she took them back home. So we have incredible support in our small agricultural rural high school or middle school that I can take this crazy idea and move it into fruition. Okay. Is... I'm hoping this is the first step into like the first step into bringing ag back into your school. It is like, like, like having a garden and maybe having sheep going out and clipping the football field <laughs> instead of spending, you know, paying mowers to do it and you know, taking the, yeah. the, the chick take, taking the kitchen scraps from the cafeteria mm -hmm. and feeding those to chickens. Like, mm -hmm. A lot of that coming around because another one of our teachers is starting a gardening class as well. So together, we're bringing these little pieces. They're in the infancy right now, but hoping to develop it into a much larger than us program. I was just, I was just sitting here and I had a really wild thought. So, and, and I know this isn't like 100% true, but Growing up here in, in South Central Kansas, school would get out around the end of May. Mm -hmm. and as soon as school got out, it was time to go to the farm and work because wheat yep. harvest was just around the corner. You did wheat harvest, you worked ground, you cut feed, you did hay, mm -hmm. then it was time to go back to school. You know, Correct. so when, when a lot of the things around here were being harvested, that's when we were off of school. So it always made sense to me that, oh, they let us out of school in the summer so we can go work farm jobs. And that's why the school system was designed like it is. Mm -hmm. And I've, I've had this idea for a long time that we really need to get agriculture and food 
back into our schools because that's how we're going to reach the next generation. It's not, you know, I can talk till I'm blue in the face talking to 40 and 50 year olds about food systems and soil health and agriculture and that, you know, we all should be growing our own food and it's going to go right over their heads. Mm -hmm. But you talk to a middle schooler and they sit there with eyes like dinner plates and they just eat it all up because they've, they haven't been told that it's not possible yet. Yes. So like, how's, and uh, this is just me shoot from the hip, a radical concept I came up with about 30 seconds ago. (laughs) What if we just, what if we flipped that and we did school spring, summer, fall. And part of the focus in this part of the focus was on growing food, taking care, planning, taking care of a garden, maintaining soil, planting the plants, taking care of the plants to harvest, and then you eat them. And then not long after you eat them, you get a two or three month winter break in Colorado where you can go live in the mountains. (laughs) Right. (laughs) You know, I like the idea. I think from an educational standpoint, you would learn so much. You would be able to bring so many ideas to the table because as, as you mentioned, very few of our students get that summer job, if you will, going out to work with grandparents, going out to work with parents and, and really, truly understanding that bread, bread starts in the field and you just spent 16, 18 hour days with that prime ingredient that you need for this food source. Um, then it's a, a whole cultural shift of Oh my gosh, we don't have summers off. We don't have, we can't go to the the swimming pool. We can't do this. We can't do that. So unfortunately, the educational sector is, is pretty set in their expectation of what a school year is. And we do what we can. This teacher that's doing her garden class was absolutely blessed with a tremendous donation of a grow wall. So she is able to cultivate a number of different vegetables throughout the winter and use that we have a partnership with our kitchen manager at the school. So we're able to use some of that in our school kitchen. So the students get to eat what they've grown. And it really does place that aha moment in their head and the, the, the other point to that is my ag class next semester is centered around food production. So we've raised this livestock and now there's the next step. What happens to that livestock as, as it moves through the food chain? So as hard as that is for young people to witness, I also, we, I'm, I'm not alone in this thought. I have the blessing of my administration. We think it's absolutely essential for students to understand that it's not, this chicken is not a pet. This chicken has a, full, has a true purpose. Whether that purpose is laying eggs or the chicken on your table, either one is a true purpose to this animal. And again, it comes back to my my education, my just the drive to educate people about agriculture and why we do what we do and it's it's kind of going back to what we've been talking about about just generations separated from from agriculture 
I want to say it was, it hasn't been recently. It was probably 10, 12 years ago, maybe even a little bit longer. I heard that like the average American was six generations removed from the farm. Whereas like, if you go back to when you and I were young people back in the eighties and nineties, it was more like two, maybe three. And mm -hmm. it, it's like in the last 30, 40 years, there's just been a huge significant jump or not jump a reduction in mm -hmm. reduction, jump, whatever the, yeah. You get what I'm saying? Like people have just yes, yes. so much farther away and so much more out of touch with their food and food system in the last 20 years that it's, it's shocking. Mm -hmm. And, and dare I say lazy in acquiring true information, the internet has made gathering of information instantaneous, whether that information is true or not. Yes. Information. And oh, one of the podcasts I listen to, um, he likes to say that the internet is an intelligence test and the results are posted in the comments. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> he, he might be referring to Twitter a little more specifically. But, uh, yes, but I would agree with almost all of that. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and and it is. That's what we're combating. And you know, getting getting the young people middle school age when you when you talk about you know having having a class in food production, okay? We were talking about those chickens earlier. And I had <laughs> I asked you about where they went because I was thinking maybe <laughs> they ended up in the cafeteria. Maybe some of those eggs yes. ended up in the cafeteria. I want to know where those mm -hmm. go. So is yes. that something that's that's further down the line? Yes. Yes. They're not old enough yet. So they they were hatched the last week of September. So that's why I have this planned out this first semester is production, learning how to take care of them. And then the second semester is more of how do we get our food then? How do we preserve our food? So again, blessed with some equipment coming in that is going to allow me to either teach myself or bring somebody more knowledgeable in to show students how to preserve food. So we have those full pantries. We have those full freezers. We have that food. We don't have to rely on the grocery store. So that's the other half of what I want to teach and what I want my students to know. So I mean, it, it sounds like you're talking about um, cooking, canning, and preserving. Yes. I'm wondering if you're going to disassemble a chicken in front of your students. Yes. Okay. That's awesome. the plan. We have a packing plan in town that I am hoping to bring in as, in, as an expert source and just walk them through the entire process of processing a chicken. And in the process, we can talk about all the other meat sources that would run through that plant. I can only imagine the hate mail you're going to get from some parents. Perhaps. We are a very rural district. And the idea with the admin is, you know, there's going to be parts of it that are, that are real, that are heartbreaking, that are hard. And students can opt out of that. 
But once you get down to the carcass of the chicken that looks like what you would get in the grocery store, then it makes it more about the learning and not so much about the hard stuff. Right. Um, because we're a rural, rural district, we have a lot more support, I feel, than some of the other districts that might attempt to do something as controversial. Probably not going to work. I'm attempting. Probably not going to work well in downtown Denver or down in Colorado Springs. Not as much as what it's going to, and it's going to make an impact. And I've already looked at my roster for the, the semester, and and I think I'm going to have a pretty positive response to that. Awesome. I, I, I really hope you do, and I hope none of the parents freak out and like go to school board meetings and protest or anything. <laughs> they will know about it prior to it happening. The communication will be will be sent out and and parents absolutely will have the option to say, no, I want my kid to have an alternate assignment during this process. And and that's fine. I'm happy to honor that. But yes, they they will definitely have a say in what their child participates in. Yeah, I just I just really love that whole idea so much that you're bringing that you're going to take food production somehow and you're going to put it in the classroom and bring it in a classroom setting and actually have a curriculum for that rather than just like, oh, well, it's nice today. Let's all go out to the garden and see what's out there and maybe look at some mm -hmm. butterflies. Not that anybody else yeah. does that. Um, and I'd, I'd really hope that this is something that starts to be replicated and reproduced all across the country. Too. I do too. I hope it's something that is received very well. And even sparking something in our own district that the high school kids then can can take this idea and go somewhere with it. Yeah, even though like you know your middle schoolers might not necessarily remember how to disassemble a chicken, no. they'll know that they can. Exactly. That they they've seen it done. They'll know. Okay. I know this can be done. I can figure this out. And it's at least this and it's at least a, a great building block and a foundation to start with versus, you know, the system that we've had for the last 15 or 20 years. Just don't ask mm -hmm. questions. Just trust the label on the box. Do what you're told. Don't ask questions. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And not only that, but it's also comparing the quality of one versus the other. Just allowing students to taste the difference between the one that you produced versus the one I'm going to get at the grocery store. What is that? What is the taste difference? Because you and I both know that there is a massive taste difference in the beef quality that you get at the grocery store versus what we have out here in the pasture. I could probably go get a pound and a half of 80-20 from the grocery store. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And go grab a pound out of my freezer, cook them side by side. What did I say? Did I say a pound and a half of mine? I meant you to did. say a pound. No, a pound, pound and a half at the grocery store and a pound of yours. Yep. I bet mm -hmm. that I cook that pound and a half of the grocery store and a pound of mine. You cook them down to brown. You drain everything off. Mm -hmm. I bet I've got still pretty close to a pound in that grocery store is probably maybe a little, maybe it's probably lost close to a half a pound and it's mm -hmm. close to a pound of weight. And yeah. that's something that, that people don't necessarily 
see or realize or understand in the pan. Like, mm -hmm. you know, they'll look at the price that I want to charge for a pound versus what a pound goes for in the grocery store. Be like, oh, you're too expensive. I can go to the grocery store and mm -hmm. get this. Like, okay, go ahead. Okay. Great. Go ahead. And then show me how that works for you. Oh, I cooked Tell me pounds. why you're fat and obese. <laughs> uh, so we were able to do a, we set up a booth down in Denver and we browned up some of our ground beef. Okay. Just on the, on the grill put it in a roaster and we did nothing to it. No seasoning, no salt, no pepper, no nothing. We just put it in little sample cups. And as people were walking by, I asked them if I wanted, if they wanted a sample of beef, farm-raised beef. I got several people that are like, yeah, sure. No problem. They would take one bite. They said, what did you do to this beef? I said, nothing. He said, oh, just, they said, oh, just salt and pepper. I said, no, I didn't even add salt and pepper. This is beef and what it should taste like and then I had the other half of the people this was even more interesting come through and said no I've had beef I don't like it and I just I would listen to what they say and I said you haven't really tried this no 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 it's fine I've, I've I don't really like it so they would always have somebody else with them that was willing to try it and based on their face based on their looks they're like can I try some? Yes, absolutely. Please. They were shocked. I converted everybody that tasted our ground beef. I, you know, it's just such a different mouthfeel and taste and the flavor just hits you and doesn't let you go. I had a little, little probably 11 year old. She took one bite. Her eyes got as big as saucers and she was like, oh my gosh, this is so good. And I was just like, oh my gosh, you poor thing. You have no idea what good food is supposed to taste like. And, right. and that is just, again, part of getting the word out there and getting it as young as possible. That kid is then going to go home and say, mom, dad, this is amazing. You have to have this. But whether or not it, it translates to them actually buying, again, I don't, whether it's my product or another producer that's closer to them, your producer is going to have much better quality than anything you can buy in the store. And whether or not mom and dad ever change their buying patterns, you've yes. planted that seed. And that's like planting those seeds in the minds of young people is far more important than converting boomers and Gen Xers you know folks our age absolutely it, most of it we're old we're not going to change we've already made <laughs> right? up our minds <laughs> right we don't have money to buy a deep freeze and and we're not going to spend it on that which okay but <laughs> yeah so uh that that deal in downtown denver was that just kind of a one-shot deal or is that a like a farmer's market type situation I, honestly it was a car show okay <laughs> Okay. So really a different population of people. And it was, we actually had some, some friends invite us because they have a mortgage lending company. They said, you guys will do really well at this car show. And it's kind of, it's a fundraiser deal for the people that run the car show. And 
it's just a fun day. We're like, well, let's just see what happens. And it, it honestly did very well for us. They do one on Labor Day and one on Memorial Day. So we're thinking we're going to go ahead and try the Memorial Day one because then you're working more into the beef season where it, people the, are like, the yeah, start of grilling like, season. Yes, yes, exactly. Um, being able to have more product on hand, that kind of thing. Um, but it was just something that we wanted to try. We know for a fact, because we've tasted it ourselves, our beef against all the grocery store brands, um, that we knew we would have some converts. So in fact, that couple I mentioned that's coming out to the farm tomorrow night is a couple that we met down there. So just full circle with, yes, try good beef, try good product, and then come see for yourself how we do things. Very cool. Very cool. So I, I was just sitting here thinking that, um, you know, as, as we record this, I'm actually going to be in Denver on Wednesday. I'm coming out for the Regenerate 22 conference. Nice. Um, yeah. In this episode, by the time anybody hears this, it'll be kind of way down in November. So sorry, I missed you at Regenerate <laughs> if you're not there. Uh, right. But, uh, yeah, so I'll, I'll actually be in town. And if I would have been thinking when we set this up a couple of weeks ago, when I bought my <laughs> tickets for Regenerate, I would have maybe, you know, maybe built in a little extra time to come up and see you guys' operation. It would have been cool. Yeah, it would have been. Um, what about you? Do, you? do you go to any conferences, any any big meetings like that or anything? Or Not, not with the beef. No. Okay. Um, I would love to get more involved in some of that. I don't have the right av avenues to be able to find those things, to find those conferences, number one. And number two, with full-time education, it's pretty hard to take the time off. Uh, that, so, and that's that's kind of what I was thinking, like, man, that mm -hmm. might be kind of hard for you to take off a Wednesday, Thursday, <laughs> Friday to go to a conference on the other side of the country. Right, right. So that, that presents a few challenges. Um, again, we're working on doing full-time in the beef business, but it's kind of nice also to not have the financial stress. <laughs> uh, yeah, I can understand that. <laughs> I, I can definitely yeah. understand that because I, you know, I, I do have a couple of enterprises that, you know, are steady money, but don't pay all the bills. And, um, yes. you know, when you hit a drought, you're like, well, not a drought year when you hit a cyclical mm. drought like Shut we're off. in <laughs> yes yes and it looks like we're going to continue it's going to continue at least through spring next year so it makes it uh yeah it makes it a little difficult when you make your money growing grass when you only get 35 percent of your annual rainfall uh yes yes exactly it, so I, yeah, it is nice to not have to depend on mother nature to secure our paycheck. Um, we can weather these storms much better than, it, and I'm not to say that it doesn't hurt. It absolutely does, but we can weather it a little bit better than otherwise. Yeah, well. I just hope we get some rain before the first of April because my forage uh, reserves are going to start looking real thin and my cash reserves are going to start looking real thin. Precisely. Yes, ours as well. We we have acreage in eastern Colorado that we rely on to feed our cows. 
and it's dry land. So I hear your pain. Well, I, I think there's, well, it's not just you and me. <laughs> it's, no, no, it's, it's everybody. A, it's everybody. And, you know, I, I think there's some people that don't even feel the pain or don't even realize they should be in pain. Yes. That's, that's something else entirely. So, um, we talked about your customers, about who they are. What's your, what's your best avenue for finding new customers and for advertising, Ben? Um, so I'm part of a women's networking group that is called Polkadot Powerhouse. And it's a nationwide group of women that are business owners or not, just looking for friendships, connection, business education, um, all the things with entrepreneurship. It, it's really a pretty amazing organization. And we're probably close to 4,000 members nationwide. They have been instrumental in growing our business because these are the, the mothers, the grandmothers, the wives, the urbanites, the people that are passionate about health, the people that are passionate about nature, environment, um, good quality, because as an entrepreneur, you know, if you don't have the quality, you're not going to bring those customers in. So these are the women that are passionate about all the things that I deliver in our beef product. And so they're willing to give us a try and they're willing to really put their money into something that is going to improve the life of their family. So that really has been the backbone of our growth. And then of course, Facebook is, is another tremendous avenue. Honestly, COVID was the best thing hands down to ever happen to our business. While that um, stream has slowed down significantly, it hasn't stopped. COVID made people more aware of, uh, maybe I should start looking local for more of my purchasing and keeping my dollars here rather than going elsewhere. And the fact that we could do non-contact delivery, porch drop-off, whatever the case may be, um, we had a good steady, we couldn't keep up that year. Um, we had a good steady stream of products that people were more willing to, to do that. So that year, hands down, we, by the end of March, I was sold out through October. I was actually reserving beef through October because I couldn't, just like anybody else, I couldn't get more process, processing spots. <laughs> right. I had, I had three a month and that's all I could get. So it strung people out for about six months, which we had the animals to, to do, but we just didn't have the spots. So um, those are some of the avenues that I work with. Right now we're into a lot of word of mouth. So I'll have people contact me and say, so-and-so has a freezer full of beef and they're shared with me and I want to try it. I want a quarter or, you know, so-and-so said, I told them I wanted a half a beef and they sent me to you. So I, we just, again, are blessed with a good product and put our heart and soul into it. And it really translates into phenomenal beef. 
And I think the evidence of that is the best beef in the West buckle, an award that uh, that y'all brought home from Riverton. Yes. Yes. All right. We got to wrap up. Anything, uh, anything you want to get out? I, you know, I think the, the biggest takeaway from Best Beef in the West is the fact that small producers with unconventional cattle breeds, unconventional feeding practices and really doing it part-time, but putting your heart and soul into something can lead to big things. And you should never be afraid to go after your dreams, your hopes, your desires. And if people tell you can't do it, stop listening and do it anyway. It's good stuff. Good stuff. All right. Where can, um, where do you want to send some traffic to in the show notes? Kane meets on um, Facebook. Actually, canemeats.com, www.kainmeats.com. Okay. You can find our process, our pictures, our cattle, our feeding program, our packages. All the information about our beef is found on canemeats.com. And of course, we have Facebook presence as well on Cane Meats. So you can stay up to date on our babies and our herd and you know, some, some last minute specials as well. I'm going to have to come stalk your Facebook page and see pictures of your babies. We would love to Larry, Moe and Kirby. <laughs> are, are they all black? Are you trying to breed all black or do you like the speckled spotted colored ones? No, um, we have two black ones actually turning a little bit more of a reddish brown chocolate color and one's a red. So three different colors. They're, they're fun. Very cool. Very cool. <laughs> All right. Well, I'll let you get out of here. I appreciate your time today and uh, and your willingness to reschedule when I'm not sniffly. Not a problem, Brian. It's been a great time and I've enjoyed talking to you this morning. I've enjoyed it too. So you uh, enjoy the rest of your week and gang, y'all enjoy the rest of your week too. Will do. Thanks right. so much. Bye-bye.